I think from a commodity price perspective, we need to see higher prices to incentivize the new supply that is needed to help us transition to a net zero economy, a net zero world. And clearly that's inflationary. And so the world, I think, is going to have to get used to higher commodity prices. Clearly at the moment, it is all about shock and disruption. You know, this enormous dislocation in traditional supply chains, whether it's Russian ships not being able to move goods, whether it's rail lines disrupted in the Ukraine, whether it's material that would go in one direction is now being forced to move in another direction. That's driving the short-term dislocation, I believe, in commodity markets. But the really interesting long-term bit is this incentivization of higher production, which needs higher pricing, which in itself is inflationary. That was Clive Burstow, head of global resources at Bearings. And this is Streaming Income, a podcast from Bearings. I'm your host, Greg Campion, and today we're talking about the role that traditional natural resources can and really must play in transitioning the global economy to renewable energy sources. My guest today is Clive Burstow. Clive heads up Bearings Global Resources team and is a fund manager on several of the firm's strategies in the natural resources and agriculture spaces. Based in London, Clive has been with Bearings since 2011, and before that, he spent time with BlackRock and Alliance Bernstein, among others. In the conversation, we discussed the really quite daunting challenge ahead for humanity in reaching the 2050 climate goals set out in the Paris Agreement, and perhaps counterintuitively, the massive investment needed in traditional commodities to actually get there. Uh, We talked about some of the incredible technologies being rolled out today by miners and by traditional oil and gas companies, and how they will play a critical role in the broader move to renewables. We also discussed how the tragic events in Ukraine may impact the long-term move toward renewables and how geopolitical conflict more broadly is impacting the way countries are thinking about energy independence. Finally, we talked about the role that commodities can play for investors as they seek to solve the inflation conundrum, and also how to view some of these commodity companies through an ESG lens, as they are increasingly becoming part of the solution rather than the problem when it comes to climate change. So with that, please enjoy this conversation with Clive Burstow. All right, Clive Burstow, welcome to Streaming Income. Thank you, Greg. Lovely to be here. I'm excited to have you. Thanks for joining from London today. Um, We are talking about uh, natural resources companies today and the role that they uh, can and really need to play in transitioning the global economy to uh, more renewable uh, energy sources. So lots to to talk about um, on that front. Um, it's perhaps a little bit counterintuitive, this topic to begin with, because I think a lot of uh, folks view uh, some of the traditional natural resources companies as some of the biggest polluters in the world. So I definitely want to talk about that and understand that from your perspective. Um, but maybe before we start to dive into specific companies and different technologies and all that kind of stuff, let's start high level. Um, I'm hoping you could just give us some context around you know, what it is we, I guess the broadest we, we as humanity 
uh, really kind of need to do uh, at a climate level? And maybe a good place to start is looking at uh, what some of the goals are from the Paris Agreement uh, and what we actually need to do to achieve those. So to put it into a high-level context, obviously the world needs to decarbonize and it needs to decarbonize by 2050. That's the date that the scientists tell us that we need to have reduced carbon emissions to a net zero. And the reason for that is that that reduces or controls global emissions to only being one and a half degrees warmer than they are today. And that's widely, again, viewed as the temperature range that we need. But to achieve that, to do that, we need to effectively take a global energy matrix, a power grid that for the last 100 years, we've designed to run on abundant fossil fuels. And in the next 30 years, by 2050, we need to transition at a minimum 55% of that, although it could potentially be a lot more to run on renewable power. And that renewable power needs commodities which today are already in deficit. So we're going from abundant supply to a deficit. But we've got to do it. 2050 is the date we have to achieve net zero by. Okay, so you mentioned the number 55%. So 55% would need to come from renewable energy sources. Where does that compare to where we are today? So we are producing about 7% of global power from renewable sources today. And that's predominantly wind and solar. That's the things we sort of see most of. But there's a whole range. There's geothermal, there's hydro, and there's battery technology. But we've got to go from 7% today towards 55% at a minimum by 2050. And that's quite a journey okay. we're going to go on. Yeah. So that's a massive, massive jump that needs to happen. That's obviously a massive investment that needs to happen. So let's talk about that investment. That's obviously uh, going to be a major structural trend uh, in the global economy for years, decades to come. Um, so let's talk about what like what that actually looks like. This is probably, I guess, where where the energy transition uh, comes in. So let's talk about the role that that traditional commodities need to play in this transition to this um, what's essentially like a reinvention of the yeah. energy grid. Exactly, and that's the point that whether it's fifty five percent, whether it's seventy percent, we are going to be investing hugely in decarbonizing the energy mix, if you like extracting fossil fuels and bringing in renewables. And renewables are materials intensive. To a degree, they're also energy intensive, but they're, they're significantly um, materials intensive. And just to give you an example, an offshore wind turbine needs five times more steel, 15 times more copper than an onshore fossil fuel power plant producing the same amount of power. So it's significantly more materials intensive. And it comes at a cost, as we mentioned, you know, it could cost up to $60 trillion to switch to enough renewable power by 2050 to achieve a net zero target. And, and that's a huge investment. I mean, that is, I think, about three times the size of the US economy in 2021. That's to give you context of the scale of what we're going to be spending. And, you know, the challenge here, it is all the commodities that we can think of, aluminium, lithium, nickel hydrogen, it's platinum, it's steel, it's cement, it's even oil. So it's a huge challenge, but one that is surmountable. So in terms of actually going about and attacking this, I know that, you know, of course, many efforts have started uh, traditional commodity companies, renewable companies, etc. So there, there's 
there's a lot of people working on this as as there rightly should be and, and need to be. Um, let's talk about some of those more traditional companies, though, because you think about you know the BPs, the Shells, uh, you know even some of the big miners, Anglo Americans, et cetera, BHP. Think about some of those those big traditional commodity companies. I mean, certainly they're not uh, sitting back idly and watching this all happen. They're active participants and, and actively driving the agenda. So let's talk about some of that because I think that's where maybe the rubber hits the road in terms of there being maybe not a perfect understanding among folks in terms of the role that traditional um, commodity producers need to play here. So, so talk to me about what you're seeing uh, actually on the ground from from yeah. these types of companies. It's a good question. And the way we phrase it is that when you think about solving the problem of climate change, resource companies, natural resource companies, are part of the solution, not the problem. Now, at this point, some people's eyebrows raise, but that's a simple fact. And it's twofold. One is they will be providing the materials, the units of production that we need to allow us to transition to a renewable energy. Those, those units of aluminium and nickel and copper and steel, and then the list goes on. But at the same time, they're also decarbonizing their own processes. And whether that is bringing in more renewable power, reducing the footprint of the mines, using artificial intelligence, digital twinning when the mines are being built, and whether it is taking clean renewable power, splitting those atoms and creating hydrogen, and using hydrogen in, in large-scale trucking to replace diesel-powered fleets. And we're seeing a significant amount of that going on. In fact, Anglo-American, which is at the forefront of some of this, they are beginning to test in terms of mobility testing, their their hydrogen-powered truck will literally within the next few months. And, and they'll be rolling that out over a significant number of operations by the end of, of this decade. So it's it's a, a twofold challenge that they face. Um, and, and the same applies to energy. You know, big energy companies are also starting this process, will advance in some cases down this process of how they can both impact climate change positively in terms of their operations, but also how they can contribute to actually the fight against climate change. You mentioned a number of technologies there, and I know that you've spent a lot of time doing things like visiting mines and and you're talking to these companies all the time. I mean, you're really in the weeds on on some of these new technologies that they're uh, utilizing, either to, to reduce the um, impact of their uh, own businesses or to contribute to to powering that that energy transition. But I'm just curious, kind of almost from like a personal level, like especially over the course of your career and seeing all this technology change, is there anything that you can think of that's like has kind of blown your mind? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Like, uh, like, is there, are there any technologies that really stand out that you're like, wow, I can't even believe that's, that's happening? So there is one, which we'll come to in a second. But seeing pictures and hearing about how companies are floating solar farms, solar arrays on tailings waste. Wait a minute. Describe that for me. I'm not sure I quite have that visualized correctly. Take your solar cells, put them on a, a basically a floating platform, yeah. And then rather than them taking up land, you've got a great big pool of water, which is the waste coming out of the processing plant. So you just float them on the waste and it generates electricity. So one, it helps with stopping evaporation of, of the, the waste, you know, the, the water up into the atmosphere. Yeah. And two, it means that rather than building a massive solar array on land, which could be used for farming or other purposes, the, the, the tailings pond is just dead ground. 
figuratively. It's just a large pool of water that you can't do much with because it contains the sort of offcuts or the offruns from the processing plant. So you just float your solar cells on top of it. So you're creating clean electricity from floating your solar panels on wastewater. So it reduces the footprint of the mine. That is quite a cool one. Um, waterless processing, I think, is a great one. I mean, again, how can you process something without water? But the companies are doing it. I also like the one where they wrap fiber optic cables around pipes and they listen to the flow of material as it works its way through the processing plant. And if it's going too quickly, they turn the dial down. And if it's going too fast, they turn the dial up. That's quite cool. The one, I think the one that really, for me, on the slightly sort of geeky scale, which made me go, wow, is the big hydrogen power trucks. You're taking a 250 plus ton truck that runs on diesel and you're going to run it on clean hydrogen. And that's coming from a solar panel. So that's actually green hydrogen. That truck will be cleaner than some electric vehicles that are running around the world today because they use fossil fuel to power them. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, tell me a little bit more about that idea because I just just the idea of like there's almost a juxtaposition here um, of some of these companies that are traditionally thought of as like the, some of the biggest polluters in the world. They uh, ironically are almost turning themselves into some of the cleanest companies in some in some ways, right? In terms of how they're running yeah. their own businesses and, and safest. Don't forget, many of these companies have you know they have zero fatalities on mine sites. So you've got people alongside massive great bits of machinery and you have less deaths than you have in more um, conventional industries. Um, the US mining industry doesn't even appear in the top 10 most fatal industries to work in anymore within wow, the US. that's amazing. But it is. It's, it's this application of technology to allow you to to have a safe environment. But I know, you know, if you think about the the, the whole idea of, of climate change, you know, the companies are taking green hydrogen, that is hydrogen that is produced using um, renewable power. Principally, that'll be wind turbines, um, or wind, sorry, wind or solar, but mainly wind at the moment. But you're taking that, you're creating green hydrogen, so that's zero carbon emission hydrogen, and you're using that hydrogen to fuel your trucking fleet. So you're removing one of the two largest emissions of carbon from a mine site. One is power, and one is, is, is mobility. So you're static and mobility power. Well, surely if you clearly if you fixed mobility power because you're using hydrogen, that also means that you're using renewable power and fuel cell technology to power your static processing lines. So the, I don't think we're that far off having effectively a zero carbon emission mine. Now that's something that 20 years ago when I started doing this was I mean, it was an alien concept. We never thought we'd see that. Yeah, so I mean that really is quite mind blowing. A zero emission mine. I mean, that's encouraging from the perspective of, you know, we started this conversation talking about the, just the massive, massive scale of investment that needs to happen and magnitudes of the US economy to, to actually get this transition done. But it's encouraging that some of the technologies that you're seeing on the ground in place already that are being utilized to, to, uh, to start this journey. And I, I, I find it helps to visualize like that because you go from these almost unquantifiable, unfathomable scale of numbers that you're thinking mm. about to a big truck. And we can visualize that and we can start to think about how that will have an impact. Um, of course, all this stuff is not uh, is not happening in a vacuum, right? So we're, we're living in a world that is constantly changing and all of us have been spending 
Uh, a lot of time recently focused on geopolitical headlines, specifically Russia, Ukraine, everything that's going on there. And so, you know, in addition to the obvious humanitarian costs and concerns uh, associated with everything that's going on there, um, there's obviously implications for what we're talking about here, um, energy markets, supply and demand, and um, and ultimately the, the transition to renewable energy. So tell me about how you're thinking about that. I'm sure you're still digesting the news like everyone else, but tell me how you're thinking about it, at least at the start, both in terms of um, short-term implications and kind of longer-term implications as well. Yeah, very much so. I mean, our, our thoughts are very much with the people being impacted by the tragic events in the Ukraine today um, as a starting point. And it has shown, I think, a fragility in global supply lines. Um, I liken it to a pebble being dropped into a pool. The splash was the initial shock. But the ripples we're now seeing are are the impacts that we're having to start thinking about, which will go on for many years outside of, of the events in the country. We're seeing that, that that limited margin of safety we had in many commodities uh, is much smaller than we had originally believed. Clearly, it's accelerating people's thinking around energy security, and not just from Russia and the you know the sanctions that are being imposed there on potentially on the energy market, but also on you know in, in many other ways. You know, countries are looking to their own supplies they get from maybe other countries and thinking, well, can I trust you in the future? And we've seen Germany in accelerating its plans to become a much uh, more green renewable power. Uh, economy to 2035. So, you know, there are real world impacts now that we're starting to see. But the immediate impact for many people is that the the scarcity of supply has been highlighted significantly, sort of dramatically, if you like, to the market as a whole. And clearly that is going, you know, this is a fast-paced shifting environment. And that is going to carry on rippling on for, for many years, I believe. Um, you know, one of the things that you mentioned is is just talking about um, this idea of the scarcity of uh, of commodities, and of course, we're we're seeing it. Uh, I'm I'm seeing it here in the states at the gas pumps t- uh, just today. Looking at headlines that gasoline or petrol prices uh, breaking out to I think all time highs, which is um, pretty wild to see, and and uh, and obviously probably not what the economy needs right now in terms of additional inflationary um, pressure. So, um, you know, I mentioned that all of this energy transition is not happening uh, in a bubble. Uh, we've got, you know, major geopolitical events happening, but we've also already been dealing with major uh, inflationary forces around the economy. So talk to me a little bit about your thoughts on that. And, you know, let's say that inflation is with us for the foreseeable future. Um Tell me what you think the role uh, that natural resources can play in investors' portfolio as they try to kind of solve this inflation conundrum. So commodities are historically seen as an inflation hedge. If the oil price goes up, one way to hedge that, if you like, in portfolios is to buy exposure to the oil companies. Yeah, same with copper, same with aluminium, same with nickel. So you know, gold is the classic inflationary hedge, but if you're thinking about the energy transition, there are platinum and palladium in precious metals, and then the whole basket of, of commodities that will hedge you. In terms of where we think that inflation goes, I think from a commodity price perspective, we need to see higher prices to incentivize the new supply that is needed to help us transition to a net zero economy, a net zero world. And clearly, that's inflationary. 
higher pricing to incentivize production is an inflationary input. And so the world, I think, is going to have to get used to higher commodity prices. The trick is the balance between how high those prices go to incentivize the new supply, but without going so high that they crimp the ability of the world to grow and pay for the energy transition, that $60 trillion number we talked about earlier on. And, and that's the balance we're in at the moment. Clearly, at the moment, it is all about shock and disruption. You know, this enormous dislocation in traditional supply chains, whether it's Russian ships not being able to move goods, whether it's rail lines disrupted in the Ukraine, whether it's material that would go in one direction is now being forced to move in another direction. That's driving the short-term dislocation, I believe, in commodity markets. But the really interesting long-term bit is this incentivization of higher production, which needs higher pricing, which in itself is inflationary. Okay. And so if you're an investor with a long-term time horizon, right? You're looking out at five years, 10 years plus. How do you play that? I mean, how, what, what type of exposure do you want in your portfolio to insulate you from those inflationary pressures? You can either buy a number of individual stocks or you buy a broad brush resources product um, similar to the one that I run. And that allows you to get exposure to both oil and materials or energy and materials as an inflationary hedge against what we think will be a, a structural shift up in commodity pricing and therefore inflation. The other thing I want to talk to you about is ESG. Bearings overall is obviously quite focused on ESG, and I think equities, uh, our public equities team has always been a real leader um, yeah, in this space um, for, for many years. And so listening to you talk about um, the amazing progress that the miners have made um, on safety uh, in the back of my mind, you know, certainly had me thinking about um, that through an ESG lens. Um, but there's so many different ways that looking at this whole space through an ESG lens um, can have different implications. So tell me just how you're thinking about all of this through an ESG lens. So we fundamentally believe that engagement, not exclusion, is how you unlock value within the investment or within investing in resource companies. It, very simple. We believe that by engaging with companies, we can actually show not just to ourselves, but to our, our investors that actually there are some really good actors in this industry that if you were to go down a, a route of investing in a vehicle that maybe is a more passive focus and uses exclusion lists, you're not going to miss out on that opportunity to invest in those companies that will drive forward the green transition, this energy transition. Um, we also believe that engagement works as it helps us to, well, twofold. One, it helps companies to understand what we're thinking and helps them shape their message along with conversations with other investors. But it also allows us to build targets that we can hold them accountable to. And let's be honest, many of these companies want to be held accountable to those targets. They want to show that they are doing good. Um, a classic example would be ArcelorMittal, who through our engagement process, we discovered is going to reduce its carbon emissions in Europe by 35% by 2030. That's 5% better than the European Union as, a, as an entity is talking about reducing its own carbon emissions. They're talking about down 30, Arcelor saying it can do down 35. So a company that people would maybe exclude as a bad actor, a carbon emitter, is actually going to contribute positively to Europe's carbon emissions. Well, that's something we would never have known without engagement. So we do believe that ESG is important. And we do believe that engaging with the companies unlocks the hidden value. 
Tell me a little bit more just about the, some of these interim targets, because I think that's a really important point, because as you look out at, you know, setting these very ambitious high level 2050 targets, right? Whether you're a government or you're a company, in some ways they could almost be just that, just just targets that that there's not really ever a realistic plan and steps along the way to get you there. So so tell me a little bit more about that because I think that's a pretty critical part of the engagement uh, focus, isn't it? Uh, you're really you're absolutely right. I mean, 2050 is a great aspiration to say we're going to be net zero. But let's be frank, I personally will be 80 years old in 2050 and probably not- I still not expect w- you to be a bearings. I still fully expect <laughs> you to be a bearings. I, I hope so. Um, but I will probably be worried about other things than 2050, yes. net zero. So a lot of companies talk about 2030 targets, and that's the, real, that's the one we're helping them strive towards. Some will talk about 2025 targets, but 2030 is the date when we need emissions globally to have been reduced by 30%. That then gives us a fighting chance to get to net zero by 2050. So the companies that we want to invest in, the companies we engage with and we look at and we analyze and assess, we track them towards those 2030 targets. And they have to be achievable using processes and technologies that exist today with investment from both industry and from public entities, from governments. But we have to be able to see that there is a process that they will get to being, let's say, down 30% by 2030. And that way, we know the world is on track to reach that critical drop-dead date of 2050. I think that's so important. It just it, it makes it that much more real, doesn't it? 2030 is not that far down the road. No, it's not. I mean, it's eight years away. Yeah, and you can, and, and you need to see real tangible progress by 2030. And I think understanding that path and influencing it, really. I mean, that, that that's really what you're talking about, right? With the engagement is being able to influence that. And just, just to add, I think that the, the companies are very well aware that they are viewed by many investors as being bad actors. You know, in some cases, there's an existential threat to, to the company as a public entity. And therefore, they are more than eager to engage with us, and whether it is directly or through processes like Climate Action 100 Plus, they want their message to get out to us. They want us to see the good they're doing. It allows investors to say, I believe in what you're trying to do, and I'm going to invest my capital in you. Not, I haven't done the work, or you know, you're on an exclusion list, I'm not interested. And you know, we can help bad actors get better, and we can help good companies get even better. I think it seems like it's all going to need to happen one way or the other to Very much get so. to, to these ambitious goals. Okay. Um, well, what's next, Clive? So uh, obviously there's a, there's a tremendous amount of activity on this front. Um, and I'm just curious kind of like what you'll be watching in the, in the coming years on this front. And maybe if there's something that you would advise investors to kind of keep an eye on to track how, how all this is moving along. Uh, I would say that, a number of things come to mind, but if I distill it down to maybe two or three, inflation. Inflation is good for commodities, and, and I think investors need to have an understanding that by investing in um, resource companies, you can hedge that inflation risk. The acceleration of the green agenda, that is clearly going to be a critical driver for the resources space, both energy and materials. So that is is certainly something I would encourage investors to be looking at investing in. And then maybe as a, a follow-on to that, concerns around the security of supply. 
Where are we going to get the units of production from? Where are we going to be able to source the raw materials to achieve a net zero world? And for the big energy and mining companies, the industry as a whole, to be able to be part of a you know, positive contributor, they can be to that. So for me, it's inflation, it's that green agenda and that security of supply. Those can combine to create a very compelling investment case for natural resource companies. That's incredibly helpful, Clive. Thank you for that that context. Um, and also for our listeners, if you'd like to follow along with Clive and his team and their thoughts, uh, I would point you to bearings.com. I want to mention uh, that Clive wrote a paper uh, recently called Bridging the Gap to a Cleaner Future that uh, was actually kind of somewhat of the inspiration for this podcast today, uh, where he talks in more detail about um, some of these really important factors that are going to be reinventing the energy grid um, in the years ahead. Clive's also done some incredible uh, detailed research on the mining sector, including a piece called The Quiet Revolution, where he really dives into a number of these technologies uh, that might surprise you uh, in terms of what mining companies are actually doing today. So Clive, this has been great. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much indeed. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to episode number five of season six of Streaming Income. If you'd like to stay up to date on our latest thoughts on asset classes ranging from high yield and private credit to real estate, equities, and emerging markets, please make sure to follow us and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. We publish a new episode every other week. And if you have specific feedback, you can email us at podcast at bearings.com. That's podcast at B-A-R-I-N-G-S.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.